Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go to Dicetower.com to find a podcast that's perfect for you. The Dice Tower is home to fantastic podcasts, news, reviews, and board game commentary. You can find all of that at Dicetower.com. The Longview is also generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Gamesurplus.com is the best place for you to go if you're thinking of making a board game purchase online. Thor and his family have prices that can't be beat, customer service that's second to none, and a fantastic selection. And even if you don't see it there, he'll be happy to track it down for you. That's Gamesurplus.com, the best online retailer you'll find anywhere. Thanks to them for their continued support. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View. And tonight I'm very pleased to be joined for a special episode by designer Brian Mayer. Uh, Brian, for those people who are not familiar, is the designer of the upcoming game Freedom, the Underground Railroad. This is a game that is being published by Academy Games. It's currently in the last phases of Kickstarter, about to be delivered to a waiting public. Uh, I am one of those waiting public, in full disclosure. This is a game that I did back on Kickstarter. After seeing the prototype and hearing more about the game from Joletti and his convention coverage and the interview that he did uh, with uh, Brian Mayer. And so I thought, you know, I'd like to have a chance to talk with him as well about this very fascinating game. Um, so, Brian, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show tonight and joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule in order to talk to me tonight. Um, one of the things that uh, you know, I wanted to kind of reach out to you uh, about and talk to you about is uh, the fact that when I talked with uh, Uwe um, uh, Eichert, who is the uh, head of Academy Games, and spoke with him about this game, um, I kind of was looking at it, and I said to myself, and, and to him, I said, boy, you know, this looks like a really interesting game. I would love to be able to use this, like, in my classroom. And he said, well, you know, funny thing is, uh, Brian's in education as well. And, I, you know, I think that was kind of part of his goal. So as soon as I heard that from him, I thought, you know, I really wanted to try to see if I could connect with you because uh, I'm a, a public school teacher, and it's my understanding that uh, you have a teaching background and are in the library sciences as well. And so I thought, you know, I'd like to kind of try and, and not only talk to you about this game, but also try to tackle the, the topic of games in the classroom, and what place they may have in education. So, uh, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about your background uh, in education? Uh, sure. I'm a certified uh, pre-K-6 teacher as well as a certified uh, school librarian. Uh, right now I work for a school library system, so we provide like cooperative educational services for a number of districts in western New York, um, and so we do support and training, but we also have resources that we provide out. So the last six years or so, we've been building up um, a game library of tabletop games, modern board, card games, and such, uh, that kind of support and help engage students with content and skills from the curriculum, um, state and national content standards. Um, I'll work with classroom teachers and school librarians. I'll come in as, as the game guy um, and bring the games as the resources 
to help provide context and meaning for what the kids are doing in the classroom. So I'll push in uh, to ELA classes or, or global classes, math classes, um, and bring game resources that kind of match up with curriculum and help run and facilitate that. Or um, I also do a lot of game design work with students as well, too, using game design as a way for showing kind of understanding of content and what they're doing in the classroom through doing design that reflects it through the theme of the game or the application of, you know, like math or other uh, content areas through the design process itself. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I wish we had someone like that in our district. Um, was this kind of a program that you envisioned yourself? Uh, is this something that you spearheaded, or was this already in place when you began working for the school district in western New York? Uh, well, it's not a school district. We kind of serve as 22 school districts, so we work more as like an ad uh, administrative um, system level for a whole bunch of different districts. We're kind of state-funded, and see. we provide those services. Um, so in Pennsylvania, we call those intermediate units, which uh, serve many different school districts. And so uh, you're providing resources for multiple school districts, not just one. Yeah, 22 districts across five counties. Wow, that's quite a lot of ground to cover. Um, <laughs> so was this your baby uh, as far as you know the, the program, the, the, the genesis, the idea behind the program? Um, it started a uh, hair after I, I got there. Um, I started there <clears throat> about six years ago. And a little after I started there, the director, uh, Christopher Harris, went to a library meeting where Scott Nicholson mm. was talking. And Scott, uh, besides being a game designer, uh, does a lot with games in the library space. Um, exploring, you know, their uses and their applications. And he talked about how games have use in libraries. And this is early in the kind of games and libraries um, conversation when it was still young and in its infancy. And uh, uh, Christopher came back and said, um, this is a really great idea. He was a gamer growing up. Um, he did um, role-playing stuff and a, and a really strong computer gamer. And I was a, a big gamer growing up as well, too. He said, so I, you know, this really seems like a neat idea. And I was like, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, and then, and then I kind of just, you know, spearheaded um, everything and kind of really jumped on, on board. And, you know, he was in, Chris was involved with it in the beginning, but being the director, he, you know, has so many other things that he has to manage that this kind of became my baby. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you have uh, uh, people that you're working with that have some vision in terms of how to utilize uh, methods and, and uh, things that wouldn't normally be associated with the classroom in the classroom. Because as you said, uh, Scott Nicholson and others have been very vocal and uh, uh, very passionate about the idea of games in libraries, and that in itself is a very worthwhile, worthy cause. However, this idea of then branching out even further and going directly into the classrooms to support curriculum is also a really uh, intriguing idea and one that I think has a lot of merit. Um, you know, I know as a teacher myself, uh, we are dealing with a student population that increasingly um, sort of is demanding to be more engaged than the standard classroom paradigm. Um, you know, that they're looking to have experiences and then reflect on those experiences rather than uh, kind of be passive recipients of information. And there's been quite a lot that's been written about this kind of phenomenon with gaming theory and, uh, you know, how it impacts education. Uh, one study in particular that I found really fascinating was uh, there was a particular uh, protein 
that they were looking for um, in, yes. in sort of a, a molecule chain that they were trying to isolate. You heard about this one? Uh, I did, yes. And, and so they were, they were trying to find the, the best way to isolate or, or I forget exactly what it was, replicate this protein that they desperately needed. Um, and it, it had something to do with something they were researching, uh, an illness or something of that nature. And so they set computers working at it, which um, with distributive computing now, you know, computers can all network together and really just grind out um, very methodically just hundreds of thousands of different combinations. Uh, and what they did was they also kind of set a bunch of video gamers on this problem as a game. Um, I don't know exactly how they did it, but I think they kind of designed like sort of a little simulation kind of a game and then asked gamers to go after it. And they were actually able to come to the conclusion faster than the network computers. Right. Yeah, they had it was folded and they were doing like uh, protein protein um, folding. Yeah, they were doing protein folding. And uh, yeah, it was kind of it was it was really great concept because it was crowdsourcing you know, solving a problem, and, and they all collectively as a group were able to solve this thing that had baffled scientists. The, you know, they couldn't get to it for years, and here a group of gamers came together and tackled it in a completely different perspective, different mindset, different approach, and, and it just, they did it. It, it was fantastic. Right. And, and, you know, I think the, the real lesson that I took from that story, now I could be completely wrong, but the, the lesson that I took from that uh, story, that anecdote, was that there, there is definitely something to um, utilizing the creative parts of the brain that are often engaged in, in addition to the logical parts of the brain that are engaged when you are gaming. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, research and talk that's been done over the years about this whole right side, left side of your brain sort of thing. Uh, most of the time people attribute the right side to being the creative, the left side to being the analytical, um, and, and there's lots of research about that. Uh, what I find interesting is that when I'm gaming, personally, I have no science to back this up with people, so keep that in mind, <laughs> but when I'm gaming, I feel like I am in perfect balance. If it's a good game, I am both analyzing, making very logical, often, decisions and calculating what I perceive to be the odds, looking at variables, but then I'm also very likely to just kind of take a divergent path or try something crazy or be sort of creative at the same time. And so I feel that um, gaming perhaps might offer an advantage in that it does not seem to favor one modality of thinking over another. Um, I don't know if there's anything to that, but that's kind of my suspicion. Um, so I'm really encouraged by the fact that you're talking about taking games into the classroom because I've tried to do some of that myself, mostly on the design side, though, okay. um, in teaching mathematics. Um, I, I try to teach kids the basics of game design as we examine probability, for example. Um, when we do our probability unit, uh, ratios, percentages, I, we design a game. And it's so much, you can just see the students grasping the concept so much more because they're involved in this act of creation of something. And so, you know, I think that there is definitely something to be said for this notion of games in the classroom. Now, we're probably, Brian, talking to the converted already. Right. So, you know, I don't want to uh, uh, certainly blather on about this myself too much. And, and, but I am much more interested in hearing uh, if you could just kind of briefly talk to me 
about some of the games that you have introduced to the classroom and some of the ways in which you have been able to connect with curriculum to perhaps give some other people uh, who might be listening to this some inspiration of some things that they could try or directions they could go. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, with prob- well, we could start with probability. I mean, a great one that I, uh, I'll use a lot of times with like middle school um, is Ink and Gold, uh, which is a wonderful kind of exploration of, you know, you're, you're exploring and you're going from room to room to room. Um, you're doing, you know, some real simple operational math, division remainders and such. But you've got that kind of closed set deck where you can talk about making those decision points based on the number of treasure versus uh, danger cards. And you can kind of start looking at it from um, some probability aspects as well, too. Um, uh, we can also talk about um, with environmental science classes. We've used um, uh, Power Grid in 1960 with participation in government classes, Boladay with physics classes. I mean, there's so many great games out there that have, you know, uh, either through th- theme or through mechanism, a ton of great content and skill immersed in them. Uh, I think the key factor to looking at for people who are exploring this concept is just the return on investment that you're going to get from that resource. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, how much curricular and content value are you going to get weighed against how much time does it take to introduce, set up, and actually get the kids through, you know, a play experience. Um, but the cool thing about tabletop games is that, you know, they can serve as, as tools, as instructional resources where you can kind of set them up and create intentional instructional moments because they're just bits and things that you can kind of push around. Right. And so you can tweak them and adjust them a little bit so that you can have, you know, specific play experiences or demonstrate, you know, specific elements for whatever classroom it is that you're, you're using it with. Um, and the same thing with design as well, too, is wonderful because, yeah, I mean, uh, anyone who's sat down to try and, and design a game knows that there's, there's math inside out, up and down. And oh, yeah. there's so much potential to kind of have kids understand and see, you know, kind of a practical application of mathematics and something that is seemingly relevant and engaging to them because, you know, I mean, let's face it, our kids are gamers. I think, you know, I think close to, you know, every kid plays games in some form, fashion, or format. And, you know, it's probably one of the most dominant, if not the most dominant media of entertainment. And so, I mean, they connect with that and seeing how, oh, there is, you know, importance and connection to this outside of having to do this in the classroom. And I think that's one of the key values that, you know, games can provide, um, is that context and meaning and, and uh, application that is meaningful for the kids and, and is engaging and immersive for them. So you have this program going, and you're getting into schools, you're building up your gaming library, you're trying to get the word out, you're working with teachers, some of whom I'm sure are very eager, some of whom are perhaps skeptical or reluctant. And as you're going through this, uh, where does the first germ of your game, Freedom, the Under- uh, Underground Railroad, come from? Um, the, well, the germ comes from, I guess, the love of uh, those card-driven historical games. I mean, seeing uh, the way that uh, a game like 1960 uh, works in the classroom, where you, you're, you're getting immersed in the electoral process in a way that's hard to replicate in, in other ways, and really seeing kind of the pieces and how they fit together and that, uh, that there's connection to, to events, both local and global, and the different elements that you have to balance and manage. And the cards and the history and the events and, and how you come away from that, you know, with a better understanding of the people 
the events, the places, the things that transpired surrounding this. Um, so I had a strong love for that, and I always thought it was a great way of kind of engaging players and students and kids and whoever happens to be sitting down at the table with, you know, that, that space, that theme, that idea. And then there's always holes. Um, there's always questions from people that I work with. Um, in my, my regular nine to five job of, oh, do you have a game about, you know, um, dinosaurs or dinosaurs? Well, no, but more (laughs) curricular things like imperialism or phonics. Um, and there's no, there's (laughs) a lot of times there are not good games about everything, though. There is a good game about syllables, uh, from Haba. Um, Oh, okay. All right. Well, Haba (laughs) does make good games. If anybody could make make a game about syllables, it would be Haba. It's an Uh, awesome game, too. Um, But so, you know, there's lots of sparks and and questions and requests. And a lot of times it's, you know, the response is, oh, well, I'll have to look for one of those and I'll keep my eye out. Because, you know, for us, the value obviously comes from games that are engaging, that were originally created generally to be a game. um, Because then... That play experience and the the intrinsic value is there, and you know the kids are engaged. They've got already have high expectations for their play experiences coming from the you know if coming from digital games and, right. and console games and video games, and you know generally if they're running across uh, a non digital game in the classroom, more often than not it's either filler or it's an educational game um, that really was made by someone that's just a worksheet and you spin a spinner and you do a trivia question and it's not there's no engaging mechanisms there there's nothing that draws the kids in right so there's so much value there so i i completely just started talking about <laughs> what direction was i going and so i was talking about, <laughs> we're talking well, about the, the germ you, yes, of it the, yes, germ the, of the it. idea so so it sounds to me as though <laughs> someone must have come to you and said are there any games about uh, a particular topic, and and that uh, what, did did somebody actually come to you and say, are there any games out there? Is there anything out there about the Underground Railroad, or uh, did your mind just go there on your own, or, or how, how did we get there? Good question. Uh, lots of questions about early American history, about um, that time period, and so that time that tends to be fairly. Uh, a topic that's covered a lot in, in the classroom across the curriculum and grade levels. And so that's always been an area of interest of mine. And the idea then came from um, we had someone new that came, that came on and then we were indoctrinating them into kind of our enormous library of games. Right. Um, so talking about, you know, here's different themes and here's different game mechanisms. And we were doing, you know, worker placement games. And then we got to um, pick up and deliver games. We were talking about um, like kind of rail rail games and those different um, resources, and uh, they talked about, they said, well, wouldn't it be, um, what about, are there any games about, like, moving people, like, kind of transportation of trains and people, um, those kinds of things, not necessarily the Underground Railroad, but, um, and then that was kind of what clicked, because I was working with the historical card games earlier, and that that made me think, oh, wait a minute, but, you know, Underground Railroad kind of came as a little bubble point at that, of like, oh, you know, those kind of networks of helping the people as people kind of tried to move and uh, find their way towards freedom and find safety and shelter. And that kind of just gelled in my head at that point. Um, and so I, at that moment, I, the nugget or the germ was, well, I want to have, you know, this, this rich 
you know, kind of card-driven historical game where I'm really going to kind of introduce and immerse people to, you know, uh, people and things beyond, you know, you know, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and kind of the key figures because there's a, a wealth of history there of people and events and things that transpired to get them kind of introduced and immersed to those ideas and, you know, and the concept of that kind of, you know, helping, uh, having people move and, and providing assistance to the people as they were moving. So it, it started in the beginning, you know, I had this picture of the man and you know kind of some movement points and the cards and that's where it started and it went through a lot of iterations before it became what it is now well thanks for sharing all that uh, with me it, it really does kind of open a little bit of a window uh into kind of you know where you were coming from when you first thought of this so this was an area of of history that you were already uh, interested in and it was as you said it is an area that is talked about a lot in school curriculums uh it comes up quite a bit um you know the, the everything from the follow the drinking gourd song to uh stories and biographies of harriet tubman and and things that we always look at uh, in the schools. But, uh, you know, this is also a topic that is rather sensitive. So, um, you know, as, as a person who's dabbling in game design myself, um, you know, I, I've designed a game uh, that is about the history of the uh, uh, Pennsylvania coal miners, the anthracite coal miners in northeastern Pennsylvania, and the rise of sort of the labor movement um, in, in uh, this region. And so uh, there's a lot of history there to kind of delve into. Um, but the history that I'm looking at is fairly cut and dry and straightforward. Um, there, there were some terrible things that happened to the workers. The working conditions were appalling. Uh, there's, there's no debate about that. Um, but I was very aware as I was making the game, um, I, I had to sort of tell the story of these miners uh, from the point of view of the mine owners. It was kind of, in, I had to reverse my lens. And so I had to kind of tell this story through management rather than labor. So the labor is there, but the players are actually playing the management side of things. They are the owners of the mines. And I was very kind of cognizant after one of my early play tests when I had a player kind of come upon a strategy of it's better for me to have mining accidents, like run a unsafe mine to eliminate my workforce so that I don't have to pay them than it is for me to maintain this large workforce and invest tons of money in mining safety. I'm better off getting what I can get quick. And if those people die in the mines, they die in the mines. And I remember being like really disturbed by that because there was, first of all, I have a lot of family history in the, the, the mines in particular. But I also kind of as a designer was like, hmm, I don't want people to be that cavalier about the loss of life that's being depicted here. Like when, when there's a cave-in, when there's an accident, when there's a fire, people died. And that was a problem. And that's kind of what got me more kind of moving in the direction of ways in which I could reflect that anger that frustration in the mechanisms of the game through all of the kind of mechanics that I'm using to show the labor movement. And I imagine you probably had to have some of the same issues as well, because as you're kind of trying to turn a period of history into a game, you, you come to realize that these little cubes that are on the map that are depicting slaves who are trying to escape to freedom 
and are possibly being recaptured and resent to the slave market and re-put into the plantation system, you start to imagine, you know, that this, this, is, this is a terrible thing. And so how did you try to approach handling that emotional kind of charge that's in your game? Because I'm still trying to figure everything out with mine, mm-hmm. and I would love on a personal level, and I think that a lot of people listening would like to know how you handled the emotional charge of the subject matter of this game. It was um, it was not easy. It was something that was very, very, very much uh, at the forefront of kind of the entire process of you know representing and making sure that the the subject and the people involved and trying to represent in the best possible way that that I could. And I know that no matter how good of a job that both I and Uwe and everyone who provided, you know, input and feedback and was a part of the process, you know, no matter how, how good of a job I tried to do, I'm sure it's not going to be perfect no matter how hard I tried. Um, but, you know, handling the fact that you, you have this, this sensitive topic and the sensitive history and area, you know, there's a few things that fell into place that just were not even a question. You know, it, it had to be a cooperative game. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't work in any other way other than, you know, you are uh, people, you are abolitionists working to try and help bring down, to help stop, to help bring about change of, you know, this horrible part of our history. You know, so the, the, the things that are, the things that are negative, the things that uh, were, were bad aspects of this story, um, slavery, the slave catchers, the events, the people that worked against that, um, they're, they're there, they're present, but they're, they're nothing that the players have any real control over. It's, it's part of what you're, you're working against and you're struggling against. And so they, they just are in that story. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, when you create a, and design a game, you're, you're telling a story. And, and you're telling a story, you know, in, unless you're doing a simulation, um, you're really just trying to kind of tell a particular perspective of a story. And, and so in this case, I had to, you know, kind of select a perspective to work for that story. And so I'm kind of looking at the perspective of, of the abolitionists, of the people that, that work to try and help um, mm-hmm. this kind of movement move forward and help bring about and institute change and the elements that are surrounded with that. And that, you know, in no way is there any intention to kind of diminish or take away from the story of the individuals, the people, the men, the women, the children who, who were slaves at that time or any of those. It's kind of just the perspective and the approach for the game that we did. And so that at least then allows you to have this interest, the balance between, you know, having the the very immediacy of helping individuals as they're making their way north towards freedom and balancing that against the, the larger kind of uh, more societal and, and, and bigger impact of the movement of, as a whole and kind of helping to shift public opinion and such. And so trying to balance between that, emo- like you said, that kind of emotional connection you can have between the individuals and then the, the larger movement and trying to keep that back and forth was 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 difficult. Um, but I think also, and I I think that ability to kind of tap in and, and draw and engage people in because you do get uh, kind of drawn into these are these people, and I really want to help them helps with the theme of the game and helps draw people in and make it 
kind of meaningful and help them connect to the history, the events, the people, and the time. Yeah, you know, that's an excellent point, because if you're not emotionally invested in the game, then it really doesn't matter to you. It becomes sort of a math exercise. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's something to what you're saying there, which is that even though the theme can be difficult to deal with, uh, when you let your imagination kind of wander back and think about what is actually being represented here, uh, it, it, you know, there, there's a couple things that stand out, which is that y you didn't try to sugarcoat it. You didn't try to sanitize it. You presented the theme um, of the Underground Railroad, and not everybody made it. Right. Uh, not everyone was successful. Um, some people were caught and brought back, and some of those who were brought back did not make it. They, right. they, they, they lost their lives because they dared to try to be free. Right. And, and, I, but, and I abstract, I mean, but in a sense, there are certain points where you have to abstract things yes. in a certain way. And so, you know, that loss... For, as for example, you know, has has a certain abstraction to it in the sense that you know slaves become lost, and it's not detailed in, in, in you know or you know laid out you know what that loss necessarily represents, but it represents a loss of life from you know living conditions in the plantations of the the attempts at escape, and you know it, it kind of groups together some of those concepts and ideas in a way that still brings the the idea across of what was happening, the, the gravity and the seriousness right. of it, but softens it somewhat so that it is still something that can have a place and doesn't necessarily completely push people away. Right, right. Otherwise, it, it might overwhelm them. Um, now, the other thing that I want to just kind of briefly touch on, and, and I also would like to give you the, the opportunity to sort of just describe the game in general, because uh, for people who might not be familiar, uh, your game kind of takes place over two sort of grand scales. So uh, half of the game is a map, and it, it, it basically involves point-to-point -point movement, and you are trying to uh, uh, help guide uh, slaves to freedom. Uh, from the south into the northeastern states and then eventually up into Canada. Um, and, and that's kind of the ultimate goal. Meanwhile, you're trying to uh, avoid and navigate and in some ways kind of subtly manipulate uh, these slave catchers that are kind of moving about the board, if I'm understanding it correctly. But then on the other half of the board, you have sort of the whole political, historical, economic side, that sort of other picture that you were referencing a few minutes ago. And so what I'd like you to do is if you could just kind of give us sort of a general overview of the game since we kind of dove into the specifics, which is my my fault. We got to dove into the <laughs> specifics and just kind of let people know a little bit about the sort of uh, two sides to this game and how they are integrated and how they work together. I think that would be fantastic. Okay. So uh, Freedom of the Underground Railroad is a cooperative game, historical game driven by cards played uh, over um, the period of 1800 to 1865. Um, you're trying to work together to try and achieve two victory conditions during the course of the game. You've uh, got the helping the slaves move from the plantations and helping them as they're making their way uh, up north to freedom in Canada. But you're also trying to raise the strength of the abolitionist movement as a whole and its impact and its abilities um, to kind of bring about the end of slavery. 
And so the game actually um, is kind of played over three periods from 1800 to 1839, 1840 to 1859, and 1860 to 1865. And so the raising of the abolitionist movement kind of is represented by these support tokens that um, are in each of the three uh, periods of time, and they actually kind of control your progression through that. So there's a certain number in that first period, um, and as you kind of acquire those tokens by purchasing them, um, it unlocks or allows you to progress into the next period of time, opening up more resources available for you. Um, and each and those resources are the, uh, the cards that feature... Um, individuals, events, and, and things that transpired kind of within that time frame that impacted the abolitionist movement and what was happening at that time, as well as uh, fundraising tokens and uh, conductor tokens that help you um, help people who are making their way up northward to freedom. So the, you know, the, the growing movement is kind of... Uh, controlled by the support tokens, while on the other hand, you've got um, this kind of network of, of routes and opportunities for movement um, that the slaves are able to move on, but as they're making their way um, from uh, place to place, um, from safe house to safe house and such, that the slave catchers ha are, that are on the board react uh, to their movement. So there's some built-in UI that um, is held or kind of... Um, there within the game that as players move and they kind of finish their movement, they may gain some support uh, from the local community, but they may also draw the attention of slave catchers, drawing them closer towards uh, that particular individual. Um, but all that could bring that slave catcher into... Um, a space where there, there is a different slave, um, thereby there's always this tension and risk on the one hand on the map board of this really kind of strong cat and mouse game where it's very difficult to try and make your way and find freedom, uh, help them, help the individuals find freedom as they're making their way north. And you're trying to balance that between kind of the need to progress and grow the movement to get access to more um, effective resources to have a, a better effect at what it is that you're trying to do both uh, politically um, and as individuals on the other half of the board. And so there's this wonderful tension and balance between these two aspects because you need to be able to do both of them to win the game. You know, if you don't purchase all the support tokens, if you don't get all the um, help, all the individuals make their way north, then uh, the group winds up losing the game. And I do need to state that losing the game does not mean that slavery goes on. It's just that your efforts don't bring around a direct, um, don't have a direct immediate impact to, to that event, that others will carry on the work and, and eventually will bring about that, the end of, of that institution. It's just that your immediate um, actions didn't. Right, right. And that's an important, uh, uh, you know, kind of a clarification there. And I appreciate you making that because, you know, you wouldn't want people to think that, you know, you're suggesting some sort of an alternate timeline of, of history where the institution of slavery uh, is not abolished. And, exactly. And, right, right. And, and, and I think that that would uh, be something that, you know, might give someone pause if they thought that that was the kind of game this is. So I'm glad that uh, you were able to clarify that. And I also am very intrigued by this idea of trying to fulfill these two goals uh, at once, trying to do these two jobs at once. Um, because, you know, many games uh, are very tense and successful because they force the player to make hard choices. Um, you're, you're, you're never able to do everything that you would like to do. And I would imagine that that 
is that tension is only ramped up even more by the theme that we're dealing with in this particular game. So, you know, one of the things that I, I do want to ask you about is related exactly to what I just said, which is what would you say to uh, people um, if, if you had the opportunity who said that this is not an appropriate theme for a game because games are supposed to be, first and foremost, entertainment. And to some people, uh, whether they are African-American or not, this may not be something that they would view as entertainment. It's, it's actual history, and it's tough history. We've already talked about that. Right. And so how would you respond to that? Because I'm sure someone has probably already asked you that. And if they haven't, they will. Um, and <laughs> right. I just did, too. So uh, what would you say to that? Uh, I, I mean, that's a really good question. And um, I think, you know, in response to that, I mean, I, th I think games like this are are important. Um, I think games like this are, are vital. You know, when the graphic novel uh, kind of first started making its appearance and started looking at and talking about topics that had more, more weight, um, uh, more seriousness, more of a, a, a more serious tone to them, you know, people immediately looked at those and said, well, these are comic books. You're, you can't, you know, make a comic book about, you know, these type, type of topics like mouse and, and, and uh, the Holocaust or, um, you know, different types of wars and different types of historical and more meaningful and weighty ideas. And, but that's kind of the evolution of the medium. And I think, you know, games have always had moments where they've looked at um, ideas and topics that, that carried a little bit more weight. And, you know, I think it's evolving even more, and I hope to see more games and topics like this. I, you know, I think, I think it's definitely worthwhile to, to look and explore those things. You know, games are one of the most dominant, as I mentioned, one of the most dominant medium um, that, that is out there. I mean, everybody plays and engages with games. It's, 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 you know, that's entertainment. That's what we digest. And so by having that form, that, that medium of entertainment, start to look and explore things that have more, more depth and more complexity to them, I think is, is, is fantastic. And I think that's a, a great way to reach out and touch and engage a lot of people with the time, the place, the history, the events, the people, so that you're engaged with it when we talk about, you know, how it works and connects with curriculum and engages people with it. And, but then they're coming away with, with an understanding and with, with, um, some meaning and some connection to our past and to our history. So it's not just something that they've talked about or read about, but it's something that they walk away and they feel connected with. So I, I, I think it's vital and important to start exploring these things. And I, th I very much think it's worth making those styles of games and, and letting the medium grow and progress so that it can start to be looked at not just as mechanisms but as art and, and to, to become something more than just one view or definition of what someone considers to be fun or what should be fun because, you know, everybody's opinion, idea, and expectations vary on, on that particular definition. Right. Well, you know, I think it's you raised some really intriguing points, and and the one that I'd like to circle back to uh, is this notion of engagement, uh, is the notion of uh, connection, because uh, you know, as a person who has tried mightily for years to uh, get my students to care, say about the French and Indian War or the American Revolution, 
Uh, I can tell you that trying to teach them about the great battles of the American Revolution is one thing, but setting up a game of Washington's War in the classroom and then using that board game to show the various scenarios and situations that were being faced by the Continental Army during that particular conflict um, did seem to make a much deeper connection with the students. Now, we, we weren't playing it as a game per se. Mm -hmm. We were using it to demonstrate, and we had uh, I had the class split into two different groups, and one group would plot and plan and make decisions for the British, and the other half of the classroom worked for uh, the, the colonial forces. And so... Um, they became very emotionally invested in what was happening on the board because it wasn't just reading about it. It was th those were their guys. So I think that what you're saying is very much the same thing, which is that when you give people a chance to kind of get um, – uh, really, I keep coming back to this word emotional, and I'm probably overusing it, but to get this sort of emotional attachment to the actual subject matter – it tends to stay with them longer and have more of an impact than just kind of reading about it or watching a film about it or something of that nature. Would you agree? Without a doubt. And, you know, education nowadays is shifting to where, you know, with uh, most of the states are adopting the new Common Core Learning Standards, where you're, you're kind of given more breathing room to kind of go in depth and explore concepts and ideas and topics and have and bring in, you know, supporting um, pieces and documents and, and, and primary sources and such so that you can take and kind of have students kind of engage with something like a game to kind of get that connection and then bring in other pieces to kind of help support that and and tell that story even further and you know so that's what's so fantastic about a games are the ability to engage and capture and and get those kids invested i i can't even think of the number of times where you go in and you're like we're gonna play this game and the response from kids is oh and then you know two turns in three turns in the the response is hey this is actually not bad and you're absolutely correct is it's an opportunity for engagement, for, for connection, for them, for players, but it doesn't, you know, students, people, whoever it is, for players to kind of get personal meaning and connection with what it is that they're interacting with because it's, 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 it's not just, you know, you're not sitting and getting. It's this communication. It's this, this back and forth between you and, and the game and, and the game narrative that transpires as you're playing that game. Well, you know, I think that that is certainly an intriguing kind of look at what may be coming down the pipeline as far as education goes. And I can't help but chuckle, you know, as a, as a teacher listening to you uh, bring up Common Core, uh, where everything old is new again. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is the way I used to teach all the time, thematically integrated, big projects, you know, really interesting scenarios and simulations. And uh, then we got into testing 
testing, testing, testing. Oh, my God, that kid doesn't know fractions. What do we do? I don't know. Let's <laughs> test him. He still doesn't know fractions. What should we do? I don't test know. Let's him. probe him. And he still doesn't know fractions. Put him on the computer. He doesn't know fractions. What do I do? Well, maybe you should do something. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> that's just me getting on my soapbox there. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I'll leave it at that because otherwise I'll, I'll run the risk of going off the deep end and really ranting and raving. So, uh, all right. So, uh, you know, th this idea of um, uh, tackling a tough theme then, uh, you feel is uh, it, it, it's not just about entertainment anymore. It's also about, uh, and not even so much education. I think sometimes that when we say, okay, well, the game is educational, that makes people kind of want to pigeonhole it and say, oh, well, oh, so you're trying to teach me something. Right. Well, no. you know, who are you to teach me? No. It's, right. it's not so much educational as it's trying to get you to think and think about a particular time and place. Would you say that that's a better way of, of looking at it? Right. I think I think that's correct. Is that it's not it's not attempting to be a simulation, or the games aren't always attempting to be a simulation um, or to teach specific things. But there is there are definitely things to to learn there and to come away from. And so you know, with with Freedom the Underground Railroad, I wasn't trying to I you know my original decision was to design a game for for the hobby market for for you know people you know me my friends people that enjoy games um but i was very much aware coming from you know the work that i do during the day that there would be the opportunity potential and connection um for that secondary market of of the classroom and for education and i and it's interesting because i think a lot of designers and and definitely a lot of publishers don't realize you know the the education space as a potential market um you know i you know part of you know i go to conferences and i do i do lots of um talks and workshops all over the country and a lot of times i'll talk to publishers about what i'm doing and how you know great their games are and how they fit in this space and 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 how much you know potential they have there and and a lot of times sometimes the reaction and, and they get it and they understand school libraries and libraries and education and, and what we're doing but a lot of times you know it's i don't think they necessarily see the potential um for introducing their their games to this wider audience of people who wouldn't necessarily know about them you know so if i go in and i run a, a game in a classroom and i'm introducing it to like 30 kids and those kids you know a good handful of them are gonna walk away like and they come to me at when we're all done that game was fantastic where do i get that game because they haven't yet discovered a lot of times you know uh the the hobby games um that we like so much and so there's potential there for you know getting uh new people interested in these resources but there's so much potential for connecting them with what they're doing in the classroom too right right while we're talking about that uh, brian i i would ask do you happen to have uh are you aware of any resources uh, that are available that we could maybe uh, either give a web address shout out to right now or that uh, you could send me and I could post uh, in, in sort of a, along with the episode posting. Are you aware of any sort of resources that exist out there that are kind of like what you were describing where it's like, okay, if you are trying to teach this concept, try this game. If you are covering this, here's a game that might work for that. 
Are you aware of, of, of a list or something where people could maybe go who might be interested in trying to bring games into the classroom uh, where they could get some ideas? Oh, you're just opening that door for me, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Wide open for you, Brian. Just um, drive right on through. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I, 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 I wrote a book uh, for the American Library Association. I co-authored it um, called Libraries Got Game. Um, it's a couple years old. I think 2010 was when it was published, and it is kind of an introduction of talking about the value of games as resources, um, kind of the models that we use where we're at. But then a key part of that is a breakdown of resources by grade level, talking about different games that fit in different grade levels and some of the subject areas that they cover. Um, that is 2010, so uh, more current and updated resource as well, too. It's still a good resource, but um, is kind of the website for, for my work, um, which is... Uh, GV Libraries, that's uh, George or Genesee Valley, gvlibraries.org slash gaming. And that will take you kind of that, that huge archive of uh, games that we have, that collection of games that Circulate and I go out with. We've got over 200 titles of games. And when you go there, you can go in and kind of enter and look by grade level. You can look by content area. And we're going to be in the process right now of putting in uh, – Common Core learning standards and then showing what resources kind of connect and support specific learning standards. And those vary slightly from state to state. But, um, you know, so that's a great resource if you teach math or ELA or you want to find a game that talks about probabilities or whatever it might be. Um, you can do that and go there and explore and find resources. And the great thing about that list is it's been vetted and professionally selected so you know we've been doing this for six years and we have the oopsie shelf of things that look like they would work and they just don't work um or they don't really work the way that we thought they were going to work um and so but these are resources that i've you know have gone out and been used in the classroom with students um a lot of times um and you you know as well uh, using them in the classroom is you know you have to modify or adjust in terms of how they work you know how do you get a two-player game like 1960 making the president and work it with a whole classroom or ink and gold you can take ink and gold which is a single you know a single eight player game but you can run it for a whole class um sometimes it comes from multiple copies sometimes it comes from kind of just changing how you play a little bit maybe using some technology for doing on on a large screen but there's you know there's ways around making those resources work so that's a great place to go i would highly recommend um checking out the site you know it's just it's just our games that we use and work but uh it's definitely um weathered through years of experience and uh something to look at well thank you for sharing all of those resources because that's something that i was kind of hoping uh that you know you could share with us and and you know ways to think about using games in other ways uh in the classroom and and to communicate curriculum and and to get students engaged and interested in the topics at hand um i i would also uh like to point people who may be sort of interested in this uh in you know don't be afraid to approach your PTO or your PTA. Uh, I know as a classroom teacher, uh, you know, pretty much every year I would go to my PTA or PTO and say, uh, here's some games that I would like to buy. And they would look, oh, oh well, what games? And I, when I explained to them what I was doing with them, they were fully supportive and, and willing to donate that money um, and, and gift it to the classroom. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that, you know, you start with something like that. And, 
and this kind of goes back to what you were talking about with uh, the potential market. And then you, as you introduce games like this, uh, for example, I introduced uh, uh, the game Numbers uh, Numbers League. Number League, my, yeah. Um, you know, at my school, uh, which has always been very high on Math 24 game, which I, I really do appreciate the Math 24 game. I think it's a, a really... A uh, fun game. It's clever, um, but what I found after years of using it is that um, it becomes uh, something that the kids begin to memorize. They actually, believe it or not, begin to memorize those cards, and they're not actually doing math anymore. They they recognize the numbers on the cards, and the the sequence, the patterns of the numbers that can generate the the product or sum or or, or what have you of 24. Whereas Numbers League. You can't really do that. Right. There's no way to do that, and yet it's a theme that the kids were all interest, you know, all interested in. Immediately engaged by, the art was, you know, something that they enjoyed. The math was actually got rather complex, depending on which, you know, if you use the expansions or not. And so, you know, after using it for a couple of years, you know, I ended up having a conversation with my superintendent, and you know, she's like, well, maybe we should buy some for the whole district. And so, you know, I think sometimes maybe, uh, as you said, game uh, publishers might not be aware that, you know, as this kind of idea continues to gain some traction, there's going to be money there. And there's going to be the opportunity to actually have a school district invest. You know, my school district invested in 24. Yep. Every single classroom had 24 cards. And that was something that we were utilizing to help kids raise their, you know, computational ability for the No Child Left Behind, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and pass those tests, you know. So uh, th there, is, uh, there is money there. And I think that that trend is only going to continue to increase as people start to utilize games in the classroom and uh, school districts begin to realize that, you know, there are other materials that can be used that will give you uh, a, a large kind of bang for the buck um, that will have a lasting effect on the students to be something that they remember. Um, you know, I, I still have students who come back to me who talk about, um, a, a, a sort of a role-playing thing I used to do every year where they had to um, they had to outfit they, they first they had to go to the king and queen of uh, either Spain or England or, or um, uh, the uh, uh, or France and ask for a charter to go to the New World to colonize and then they had to get a ship and then they had a budget and they had to outfit the ship they had to outfit it with supplies they had to choose what kinds of people did they want to bring you know did they want to bring soldiers did they want to bring doctors did they want to bring lawyers did they want to bring laborers did they want to bring cooks all of these different things and they had to outfit their ship and then they had to try to make it across the ocean and all of the wonderful crazy things that would happen to them on the way and, you know, they remember those things. Yeah. And that's, again, that connection. It wasn't just reading about a ship from France that went to Canada. Yes. They were going to Canada. They were going there. They had done the research. They knew they wanted to try and set up a, a trapping and trade sort of, you know, industry and make money that way. Others were going for lumber to send back to England, which had largely deforested itself in making its wonderful fleet that ruled the seas. And so they had like all of these ideas and they became much more sort of connected with it. And that was just something that I kind of made up myself based on my old role-playing days. 
Then come to find out years later, Brian, that there was, there was a company called Interact, Teach Interact, that made all of these simulations, very similar to the one I had done, mm -hmm. and multitudes more. And I used those for years before our curriculum got squeezed by NCLB, and I lost kind of a lot of my freedom as to uh, what I could take time with. Right. And, you know, the kids were always very engaged by that. And, again, there was money there for those things. People, I think, are are beginning to understand the value of games and simulations in the classroom. So I appreciate you sharing all those resources because I, it's something that I would like to see people get a little more interested and excited about. And if this is a, a small way that we can kind of do that, uh, you know, you've already published a book. You've got game design under your belt here now. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, Scott Nicholson kind of blazed a trail along with, uh, at least he's the, he's the one that I'm most aware of as far as being one of the first out there to say, hey, you know, how about, you know, getting games into libraries and yeah. into classrooms? And so, you know, I think that there is that sort of growing movement that is starting to gain some traction. So um, we've, we've spent a lot of time now talking about that. I'd like to kind of return to your game, okay? Okay. So the game is going to be coming out, I think, my Kickstarter update said they're going to be shipping sometime in October. I got my, my fingers crossed. Um, what would you say... As the designer of the game, uh, you know, when I look at the, the game page on Board Game Geek and it talks about the mechanics in the game, cooperative play, pick up and deliver, point-to-point -point movement, variable player powers, all of these different things, um, what would you say um, is the kind of place of the, the variable player powers? Because I've really, I, I've kind of got in my head now the cooperative play aspects mm -hmm. and the pick up and deliver. Um, you know, and point-to-point -point movement. But where do the variable player powers come in? Could you tell us maybe a little bit more about that as a preview? Oh, sure. Uh, well, each of the players kind of, uh, when you start out, you get a, a role, um, which uh, it helps kind of provide some, some guidance and some more kind of connection as an individual uh, to the game. And so each of the roles aren't necessarily individuals, but more... Uh, types of individuals that had an impact. Um, uh, so uh, the conductor, the agent, the preacher. So they, they each kind of have an impact um, a little bit um, that differentiates, them, differentiates themselves from the other players in terms of uh, a slight, uh, slightly greater impact for um, you know, the political aspects of things or helping to kind of raise, raise the funds and, and the goods necessary or to help uh, people as they're making their way north. And so each of you kind of have your own role that has its own unique little kind of benefits that you get every turn. And it also has its own unique special power um, or one-time use thing that you can do, which is kind of larger, larger and has a broader impact that you can kind of trigger um, at the most opportune time based on conditions and what's happening in the game. So each player is kind of unique in the sense that they, they each have a little bit of a different edge. Everyone gets a little bit of um, financial, in, you know, a little bit of financial money coming in, but each player can do some things a little bit differently. Some people can buy um, particular tokens a little bit cheaper, or perhaps they get a little extra movement, or they're able to do extra things when they fundraise. Um, but yet they also also have that kind of larger ability to impact the game through that kind of one-time special power that they get to use, which then may 
increase or decrease uh, what it is they can actually do and impact the game uh, once they've then utilized that power. So sometimes uh, things get a little bit better once they've triggered that power, or sometimes they don't, and they kind of diminish a little bit as well, too. Well, thanks for sharing that, because I was curious about, you know, what what's or whether it was a specific person uh, that you were supposed to be sort of taking the role of right. or whether it was more general. So I appreciate you sharing that because that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, again, you know, there's a level of abstraction there that you're talking about. You've mentioned that a few times. Um, the game is also kind of listed, and I have heard other people talk about this, uh, particularly the portion of the game where the map is. Okay. Um, that, that it's a bit of a puzzle game. Yeah. Because of that push and pull of how uh, the slave catchers move uh, when the players elect to try to move people uh, northwards to freedom. And so, uh, you know, with any puzzle game, one of the questions that always pops up in my mind is, is there a way to solve it? And if, if so... Uh, you know, obviously that's a bad thing. So what what did you build into the game in order to keep this from becoming something that could be mathed out or optimized or sorted out so that, you know, players could not just simply repeat the same sort of patterns over and over? Sure. Uh, well, so the, there is definitely a puzzle aspect to that map because everything's kind of right there in front of you. The slave catchers um, for the majority of the game are moving in reaction to your movements. Um, so, you know, if you move to a particular area that, um, the slave catchers have routes that they travel on, um, and they stay on those routes. And so when, uh, a slave stops in a particular space or a city, um, if there is a slave catcher route connected to that city, it kind of draws that particular slave catcher towards that slave along its, its kind of path that it travels on. Uh, so definitely, it, it, there's this puzzle of kind of cat and mousing and trying to find the best way to move uh, the, in, the individuals and help those individuals as they're making their way north. So we introduce a little bit of randomness at the beginning of each turn. There are these slave catcher dice that you roll um, that will feature five of the side. There are five slave catchers. So uh, the one die, there's two dice. One of the die features each of the five different slave catchers. Um, the six face is just kind of a free movement where, where nothing happens. Um, so at the beginning of each uh, round, there could be some potentially random movement where one of those slave catchers could uh, get a tip and move a space or two and, or three in a particular direction. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of which way they're going to go. There's also, um, while the conductor tokens are kind of set in terms of who's buying it, the order in which people buy those conductants, who's moving people and who's not moving people, because as you take turns moving around, some people may have bought conductor tokens, other players may have um, been focused more on doing fundraising activities, the order in which the card the cards themselves come out as well too, because um, there's that a there's the abolitionist deck for each of the eras that feature the people, the individuals, and the events that allow you to kind of move slaves and and help and impact in different sorts of ways on the board. So there's a lot of shifting and variability in terms of player order, the things that you purchase, the way things come out, so that there is a puzzle to the game in the sense of you have to try and work out. Every turn, every round, how am I going to move these people? How are they going to move along these paths based on the situation that I'm faced with? So you're puzzling it out, but there isn't one answer because there's a lot of moving pieces that take place within that. 
Right. So there's a lot of variability, it sounds like, in your game design where things are not going to become too scripted um, because you've got actually, from what I'm hearing, uh, a few different layers. You have the layers of the cards as they come out. Right. You have the layers of the dice, which may or may not uh, have a, a slave catcher move or in, and in what direction. Right. Uh, and then you also have the uh, added variability of the player choice, well, you know what they're doing and what their plan is. So it sounds like there should be, uh, theoretically, a, a sort of infinite replayability here uh, as far as you're not going to encounter necessarily the same situation twice. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about these conductor tokens? Because you've referenced them a few times. And for people who might not be familiar, maybe haven't read the rules, what are, what are the conductor tokens all about? Uh, so the conductor tokens are kind of ways in which you're um, helping people is they're making their movement along the Underground Railroad. Um, so each of the tokens feature allow you to move um, a certain number of individual or help a certain number of individual slaves move um, a certain number of spaces. Generally, it's going to be one or two spaces that they're going to be moving. So in the first era, you're able to help uh, three slaves move a single space. In the second era, when you're in the second time frame period, you then now have two um, tokens that, that become available to you. So uh, you're able to move four slaves a uh, single space, or you can move um, two slaves two spaces. So you have a bit of options in terms of what you want to do, and you're able to kind of get more variability in your movement because there can be difficulty as the board fills up on, on finding the right ways to move based on the movement of the slave catchers because you can't move into a space where a slave catcher is. But also the individual spaces themselves generally can only hold a single slave. So making sure that you know there are opportunities and spaces for people to move as well too. Um, as you get kind of a little bit farther north, the larger cities can hold more than a single slave. So you know taking advantage of that as well um, can be beneficial as you're trying to kind of work out and make this movement. Um, but then there's more risk because if uh, um, a slave catcher happens to stop there, it has a potential to capture more than one individual sending them back. So the tokens are like one of the primary ways in which you're going to be helping um, people as they're kind of making their way northward. Um, there, be, there is also movement built into the roles sometimes, depending on which role it is. And there's also movement built into the cards. Uh, you know, a lot, the, you know, the heart of the game is kind of, you know, the, the puzzle aspect of the board and then kind of the abolitionist, car, the financial aspect of kind of, building and progressing uh the movement and then kind of managing the cards themselves too because you can't play and win by the tokens alone you really need to draw from and utilize the cards the individuals the events that impacted history um because that's that's you know key to the story the experience and 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 winning the game now, it's also my understanding that not all of the cards are helpful to the abolitionists, meaning helpful to the players. Is this true? Yeah. Uh, so there's a mixture of different kinds of abolitionist cards. There are um, kind of the general cards that um, you know have a positive impact. There are uh, reserve cards, which you acquire, um, and they're kind of – you hold on to them until a more opportune time. Uh, because when you acquire an abolitionist card, when you, when you kind of purchase it from the queue, it, it, it happens. It, its effects take place. Um, and there are negative cards that are floating through that as well too which represent individuals and events that were kind of working against what the group is doing um so you know those negative aspects that we talked about how do you handle those earlier well you've got the kind of the ai built into the slave catchers through the reaction to the movements and then other events and things working against the players are represented through these these cards that are coming through um 
the opposition cards, the opposition cards that are coming through the queue that um, they then, you know, the players have to find ways to kind of overcome and, and work around. Um, you know, you have these decks of cards and, you know, the way they come out, there's variability there, but they come out in a queue. So you have... Uh, opportunity to see the cards and kind of plan and and work to find the best strategies and ways to deal with what's coming and their way towards you. So the negative opposition cards, you actually sometimes you're able to kind of um, kind of get those out of the queue at a time when it's a bit more opportune for you um, and dealing with those consequences at that point. Sometimes their effects are just there while it's in the queue and you kind of have to suffer through it while it is that as time progresses and it makes its way through the queue. Um, and sometimes the event doesn't happen until it kind of makes its way through the queue. And at the end of a round, if there is a card all the way at the end of the queue, it'll kick out. And if it's one of those negative events that triggers when it comes out, it would then happen at that time too. So there's a lot going on there with queue management as well too in terms of dealing with you know those events both positive and negative to try and help players to be able to get the good things that they need to help progress the game forward and dealing with those negative events and there's some neat mechanisms built in there to help manage the queue well that certainly sounds like it's uh, there's a lot of interlocking systems there i mean you have the sort of cat's cradle of the movement uh system that you have there and then you've got sort of almost like a, a deck management thing that you're you're trying to deal with in each individual era yes yep and then you've got kind of the economic management of things as well too because you need to um have the funds and the money available to get the tokens to get the cards to get the uh support tokens to progress to the further era the next era and each of the tokens are limited those are limited resources so when you use a conductor token or a fundraising token uh they're gone from the game and there's only a limited number of them the conductor tokens there's a small uh the very last one is kind of actually off colored and that one kicks back so there'll always be one conductor token but if you've got four players fighting over just a small handful of tokens your impact lessens so you also have the pressure to progress to the next era and grow the movement so you have more opportunities, more resources, and more of an impact. So you're, there is, there's a lot of moving parts in the game which keeps it you know, dynamic and engaging, but the mechanisms themselves, gameplay is fairly straightforward. There's not a lot to the game, but there's just a lot happening in the game, which, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that because, you know, generally it, it, you know, I've found that many of the games that people that I've talked with really seem to like and enjoy are often games that are relatively simple mechanically. Um, but the, the sort of brain burn comes from the decisions that you have to make and uh, the, the way in which you have to sort of manage your resources or, or you know, manage uh, your um, well, I, I kind of talked myself into a corner. Resources, you know, whether the resources are cards in your hand or uh, resources depicted by the game itself, such as the tokens you're talking about, um, you know, or, or money in another game or, or what have you. So uh, it sounds like you have, a, you know, a, a very, very interesting game here. I can tell you that I'm, I'm very intrigued by it. Um, I, I give you a lot of credit for tackling uh, a theme that is important and also uh, sensitive. And I think that, you know, uh, personally, I think that there's some bravery there um, because, you know, anytime you're dealing with a theme such as this, 
uh, that there's there is a little bit of rawness there. And, uh, you know, I appreciate all of the things that you've shared uh, tonight about how you tried to deal with that and be respectful of that and um, kind of convey all of this information, all of the things that happened, that the history, uh, as you keep saying, the people, the places, you know, all of the, the things that happened and the people who were intimately involved. So thank you for, for sharing all of your thoughts about that with the game. After having gone through all of this, uh, what's next for you? Are, are you thinking about another sort of historical game or are you going to take a little hiatus <laughs> for a while uh, from this process? I mean, I can tell you after messing around with my game for a while now, I'm, I'm a little burnt. Uh, I'm a little, I'm like, wow, that was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. Um, uh, what, what are your feelings? Uh, well, I, 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 I can't not work on things. So, I mean, there, there's something, there's some things that were on the shelf before this and there are things that have kind of come out past this i mean i don't think i'll be doing a cooperative game again for a while because it uh i i've heard it said before and now that i've gone through the process it's really hard to design a cooperative game because you're you know you're 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 designing uh another player you know the game that you're working against the system and that narrative arc and it's 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 challenging uh to to really try to finally control and you know hope that that narrative arc that rise in tension and you know that experience becomes what you want it to be because uh, you're scripting it you know hoping through the mechanisms and the way that the game system evolves that you know you continually convey this kind of rise in tension and difficulty um as the players are playing the game so definitely not going to be a cooperative game um but I do have two things, you know, I do have a few things that I'm playing around with, um, and yes, both kind of historical-based. Uh, one's going to probably be a lighter family game, um, and the other one is going to be definitely something that's got a lot more teeth to it, but that's really about where I'm at on talking about those things right now. All right, so no <laughs> no breaking news here for the long view. That's okay. Hey, you know, I gave you a big open door earlier to tell me. Uh, <laughs> I thought maybe I'll see if uh, he's willing to drive a truck through a second door that I'll open for him where he can tell me about a new game. Well, listen, I wish you the best of luck with uh, your future endeavors, not just in game design, but in your uh, mission and, and your work uh, in your day job of uh, trying to continue to find ways to uh, motivate and uh, reach and inspire students uh, through the use of games in the classroom. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. It was a delight talking with you, a fellow educator. Um, so, that, you know, I know we definitely kind of danced around that subject a bit and it, it carried through, but um, it was a pleasure being here, without a doubt. Well, thank you, Brian, and uh, I really appreciate having the chance to talk with you. So for Brian Mayer and myself, I want to thank everyone out there for listening. And I also want to, of course, uh, send a shout-out to my sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. Uh, thanks for their continued support of The Long View. And I encourage you to go and order from them if you're thinking about online gaming purchases. I also want to, of course, mention the Dice Tower Network. The Long View is a proud member of that network, and I encourage everyone to go there and check out the other gaming podcasts and reviews and news and commentary that the Dice Tower provides. So for Brian Mayer and myself, thanks for listening and have a great night.